The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither this show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us once again. And it's a pleasure to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner as well. We have a great show ahead. Phil, we'll start with you. Great. Thanks, John. I thought I'd continue a little bit on the theme that we touched on last week when we were exploring the bond market. And I have a few other data points that I pulled on the on the credit markets today that I'll that I'll share a little bit into this. But I thought I'd I'd highlight this just because I think it's such a useful resource. Uh, it's pretty much the only consolidated piece of macro research or data that I look at on a regular basis. And, and I'll talk about why, but it's the JP Morgan quarterly guide to the market. So I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. If not, it's pretty readily available out there. I think you can just Google it and find it um, these days. But every quarter when it lands in my inbox, it's kind of the one thing that I'll actually pay attention to just because it's not commentary. It's not forecasting. I mean, there are some implicit forecasts in there, but it's not analysis, right? It's literally just a snapshot as to where we are. So the guide to the markets is kind of a misnomer. It's really more of a snapshot of the markets as we stand today. And it's you know usually 60 or 70 pages long with lots of data and, and numbers and charts that, that illuminate where things stand. And I find it to be really helpful because then it gives me a good grounding as to where we stand, which doesn't help me forecast necessarily, but it does help me think about probabilities and, and where things might go. And it helps me just tune out the rest of the noise because you know wh- whether you're on Twitter, reading the Wall Street Journal, or talking to people, it's almost impossible to avoid macro commentary. And I just find it so unhelpful. I, I think it's actually counterproductive a lot of the time because I just find it so unforecastable. It's unknowable. So by reading this once a quarter, it's really been a good way. It's become a good part of my process for just staying you know, grounded and informed and where things actually stand in a historical context, which gives me a little guidance as to where things might go or where the risks might lie. This is a good example of the kind of unforecastability of it. So one of the first things they put in there every quarter is just sort of a a snapshot of the S&P 500. And it's amazing. They've got since the 2000, March 24th of 2000 peak, it was at the S&P was at 1527. It declined to 777 on October 9th of 2002. So you know, pretty grinding couple of years there where the market fell by about half. The forward PE actually went from 25 to 14. So, I mean, just a ton of compression. And I don't think too many people in 1999 or March of 2000 were forecasting such an event, but that was pretty brutal for a lot of people to live through that, even though it's distant memory at this point. And then 
back up to the pre-financial crisis peak almost exactly five years later, or actually exactly five years later, October 9th, more than doubled right back up to almost the exact same level it started at 1565, but still only at 15 times forward earnings. So again, I, I distinctly remember this when I was just beginning as an investor, oh, the market's only at 15 times, right? That's actually kind of right on or right below its 25-year trailing average at the time. So, you know, it's not that expensive. You know, dividend yield was 1.9%, um, you know, really not too out of line, um, pretty supportive. And, and we all know what happened. So then over the next, you know, two years, again, kind of a two-year drawdown fell by more than half this time to 677 um, the intralow is 666, but again, the, the forward multiple fell to just over 10 times, which is pretty astounding. And then how many people in March of 09 would have said, what's going to happen next? We're going from 677 to the pre-COVID peak on February 19th of 3,386. And then a quick drawdown from there to 2,237 on March 23rd, just, you know, five weeks later, basically. Um, just astounding, right? And then the biggest whipsaw of them all right back up to 4,308 on September 30th of this year. So I think what's interesting is one, just what an insane roller coaster that's been Two, how I would have been. And I think almost everyone who's honest and rational would have been wrong at many steps along that journey. And then the two things that, that also jump out are not just, you know, the relative lack of importance of the forward price earnings multiple as any sort of indicator of anything, but also just, you know, the dividend yield. I mean, the dividend yield at the peaks was 1.4, 1.9, 1.9, and today it's 1.5. Okay. Not, not really that helpful. The 10 year treasury yields over that period has gone from 6.2 in March of 2000 down to 4.7 in October of 07. And now of course, down to 1.5, 1.6. Pretty astounding. Right. And if you look at some of the high level yields and numbers, uh, like I said, the forward multiple of earnings now is about 20.3. The 25-year average is about 17. Okay, what does that tell you? Uh, I mean, to me, it doesn't tell you a whole lot. I mean, then you get into things like price to book, which is totally meaningless. I, I guess the one thing that's somewhat interesting is the earnings yield, the reciprocal of the, the earnings multiple, uh, less the uh, BAA or triple B bond yield. Uh, is about 1.56. The 25-year average, shockingly enough, do you guys want to guess what the 25-year average is for that level? The earnings yield less the triple B, triple B bond yield. So earnings yield less triple B bond yield. So right. that's like what something getting, that should be a little less, paid, a little less than the equity, equity risk premium. You would think. Um, so my guess would be somewhere in the three to four percent range. Yeah, shockingly enough, the twenty-year average was thirteen basis points. Whoa! <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, orders of magnitude off. Yeah, exactly. That's I was in the exact same boat. Like I was shocked when I saw that number, and I read it several times. And so that's what. What's the range? Do you, Do you know the like max and min on that? Well, that's the one thing though. You're going to get this argument. Oh, they actually didn't put the full range of that on there. Unfortunately, it's on page five. If anyone wants to to flip to that. Um, but that's what everyone's talking about when they're talking about there is no alternative, right? I mean, on a relative basis, and, and we've we've talked about this, I mean, a lot of people have talked about this for at least five or six years. On a relative basis, stocks are still cheap compared to bonds. And, and we'll get into, I pulled some, there's some great data in here about just how completely and totally insane bonds really are. Um, but it highlights the fact, I mean, so all of these other metrics, if they take a normally, or a normal distribution, which again, they that's a 
it's a tenuous assumption. Um, but the forward PE is like a little over one times above its mean and the standard deviation or one standard deviation above the mean. Uh, the CAPES 1.4, the dividend yields 1.6, uh, the price to book, blah, blah. But the earnings, yield, it's actually 0.7 below of a standard deviation below, right? I mean, so it's, it's showing that stocks are cheap, which is kind of astounding. But uh, the other one that, that kind of blew my mind in this regard was that the top, the top 10 stocks by size or by market cap uh, are 28.6% of the total market, which is actually you know, up from 19.7 over the last 25 years, the other, the, the others, you know, it's, it's less, it's less stark, I guess you should say. But then if you look at the, the earnings contribution, they're basically on top of each other, right? So, I mean, the weight of the top 10 stocks, and it's all the ones you'd suspect, right? Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. I mean, it's 29.3% of the weighting and 28.2% of the earnings contribution, which again, I think we've talked about several times. I mean, it's not that there's some huge historical bubble in these great giant tech companies that are ruling the world. It's that they're actually great companies and the market's being pretty rational about pricing them, particularly relative to the rest of the equity market. So are meme stocks insane? Sure. Is everything else, you know, bubbly? I Less clear to me. And when you get to this level of analysis, I mean, there's really not much of an argument to be made, if you ask me. Likewise, the median... S&P 500 has a forward PE of about 19. That's really only up from 16 over the last 25 years. And again, interest rates were nowhere near this low over the last 25 years. What is different is just like income inequality and wealth inequality, the inequality between the 20th percentile and the 80th percentile is blown way out. That's 19.1 times now versus 11.1 times before. So there's, a, there's definitely a big spread. Um, there, the other another chart that I thought was really interesting is what do you think the average intra-year drawdown was in the S and P 500? And this goes back uh, 41 years, actually. They they ran this analysis. So how much from any from January one or from its high water mark? What do you think the, the average intra-year drawdown was? My guess would be like 11. percent That's pretty I'll good. I'll say yeah. more. Okay. Those are both pretty good though. 14.3. And it's stunning. So 31 of the past 41 years posted positive annual returns. But if you exclude the last like decade, basically, pretty much all of them had a double digit drawdown, more or less. I mean, the vast majority anyway. I mean, you look at some years, you know, forget about 1987, where there was a 34% drawdown and the market was still up 2%. By the way, the, the positive returns here don't even include dividends. Um, with the famous crash of 87, you had this massive drawdown, but then you actually still finished the year up just a couple of months later. But, you know, 17% drawdowns in 1980 and 1982, both finished up 26 and 15% respectively. Again, it, a similar thing happened in 97 and 98, but kind of ignore them. But even in 2003, down 14% at one point, up 26 on the year. Uh, Similar numbers in 2009, 2010. We know, of course, what happened last year. Again, we had a 34% drawdown there in February and March and finished the year up 16 without dividends. So just kind of astounding as to how quickly things rebound. Um, this data, I, I, I kind of question whether some of these are correct, but on, on an inception to date from COVID, so going back to March of 2020, we're now actually up 20% on consumer debit and credit card transactions. So at one point they were down 34%, which I believe would have been in the second quarter of 2020. 
but we're now up 20%, which is pretty stunning. Hotel occupancy is still down 11%, but travel and navigation app usage is up 15, which is, which is interesting. Seated diners are still down 8%. TSA passenger screen on a daily basis still down 23%. Purchase mortgage applications are still way up, actually, at 7%. They were at one point down 35% as well, but that came snapping back. But here's here's another thing, one on the credit markets that I wanted to get to because we talked about this last week. Um, the nominal yield right now, as we all know, and it, it ended September at 1.52%. But inflation, what do you think inflation, this is core CPI, so holding your nose and pretending like that matters. What do you think core CPI average and they go back to 1958 for this. So core CPI inflation average since 1958. What do you guys think it's been? What do you think it's done? I'll say three, two and a half. Let's say two and a half. You were you were closer to 3.6, actually. And oh, right man, now, I was, yeah, I was gonna guess something like that because the 70s make it nuts. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but it's actually running a little bit higher right now, right? I mean, they use 3.98% or almost four percent. Um on a trailing basis, I assume it, I have to check the footnote. I think that's year to date, but that puts the, <laughs> the real yield like two and a half points below zero, which just kind of jumps off the page. Right? I mean, it's just kind of astounding, right? I mean, the the average real yield is, is actually only been a, a hair over two, two point two percent. Again, that's nineteen fifty eight to through September of this year, but just kind of makes your head shake when you sit there and read this. So I'm sitting there reading this and, and just looking out the window, thinking like, all right. Where could this possibly go? One well, thing that, it, it, go ahead. Can I just one thing that's that's really interesting is I saw a chart that actually the real yield on junk bonds for the first time ever turned yes. negative. That is correct. Yeah, I think that was the first time ever. I think that was in September, right? It was recently. I did see that this um, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this year. year for sure. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. I mean, <laughs> you're you're getting you're, you're you're paying for the privilege of owning junk bonds in real terms. Like it's just astounding, right? One thing that ties into this, which I think has interesting implications too, is if you look at the working age population in the United States, this is just the US, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, every decade, it was about 1.1 to 1.2% of, of growth in the working age population. Those are annual numbers. But in each one of those decades, that was the average. It was a pretty steady you know, environment for, for a growing working age population in the US. And immigrants were about a quarter to a half of that growth. And then you look back at the past decade that ended in 2019, so 2010 through 2019, and the total growth fell all the way off to only 0.4, 40 basis points of annual growth in the working age population, where immigrants were, you know, three quarters or more of it. And then if you look forward at the demographic forecast, I mean, on a decade basis, you can get this reasonably approximated. From 2020 through the end of this decade, 2029, I think we'll be lucky to have 20 basis points of working age population growth. And it's going to be almost entirely immigrants, right? I mean, this is truly uncharted territory in the history of the United States. And I think it ties into a lot of what you're seeing in some of the deflationary pressures that other countries have seen over time. But anyway, flipping back to the, the credit stuff for a minute, because this, this was really the meat of it. In the high yield stuff that, that you mentioned, John, so the high yield default rate, what would you guys guess it's been over the last 30 years? And what do you think it is year to date? So this is just the number of high yield issuers, non-investment grade issuers that have entered default over that year or in that period of time. I'm going to guess 5% historically and today, like 60 bips. 
I was going to say 5% as well. Today, yeah, really low, probably around 1%. Yeah, so you guys are both very close and directionally correct, which I would have not. I mean, I guess if I really stopped to think about it, like just anecdotally, there have been so few defaults and the ones that have defaulted have been so high profile, they're kind of maybe skewing my perception of it. And I, I, I hadn't looked at this since maybe, I don't remember reading this in the second quarter uh, package. But anyway, so the 30-year average is 3.5%, 3.49. And year to date, we're running at exactly 2 which is just stunning that we're that far below the historical rate coming out of, you know, a hopefully generational pandemic. Like it's just unbelievable. Um, and then the spread to worst, also pretty incredible. Historically in high yields, about 5.6%. We're down to 3.1. And what's amazing then is we're taking so much more duration risk because the recovery rate has fallen a full four points. The recovery rate, which they measure as the price of the bond or loan 30 days after an official default, historically was 39.6, which again, includes a lot of unsecureds with low recovery rates, but all the way down to 35.9. So you're getting lower recoveries despite fewer defaults. And that is a recipe that is just really hard to stomach. So you look at what you're getting paid right now, the U.S. high yield index is yielding about 4% and the average maturity is pushing seven years. Like I, I hate giving investment advice and you guys know that I don't give investment advice here in particular just because I don't want to lead people astray. I don't want anybody to lose money, but I'm pretty comfortable giving this investment advice that that's insane and you should be as far away from that as you can possibly be. I mean, but it's this just is not investment advice anyway. <laughs> it's definitely not investment advice, but holy, I mean, it, that is just, so insane, it's hard to believe. Likewise, the US high yield spread to worse is at an all time low, as, as at least as far back as the data goes. Another one that'll blow your mind the duration of investment grade corporates in the US is at 8.7 years. The average is six. We're at an all time high there. We're at an all time high of the percentage of investment grade that's rated triple B, the lowest tranche of investment grade, over half now. And, and likewise, if you go into non investment grade, you're actually at the highest percentage ever that's triple C. So it's just kind of incredible. And then for the Europeans, like it's actually interesting. The European corporate yield at the end of September was actually 35 basis points. So quite a bit lower. The comparable yield in the US was 2.13. But there's only 5.3 years of duration there versus an average maturity. So they didn't measure duration, but an average maturity of 12.2 years in the US. So way less duration, in my opinion, way less risk, even though the yield is negligible. I mean, a negative real return is a negative real return. You might as well not get completely blown up on duration too. And likewise, in European high yields, a 3.16 yield at the end of September and only four years of duration, like I said, versus you know way more than that in the US. So just astounding. And then the last thing that really jumped out at me was US outperformance. So US outperformance over the MSCI EFI index. What do you guys think that's been over the last 14 years? I don't know why this goes back only 14 years. I guess that was, well, it's the last time there was any non-US Are you talking like annual, annual outperformance? Total, cum, sorry, and cumulative. Total, cumulative. Yeah, they, yeah, they did it cumulatively instead of annualized for some reason. Jeez, I bet the US has had like 3x the total return of MSCI. I'll say double. Yeah, very close, 240%. <laughs> I mean... The wisdom you know, of crowds, John. We got to average our answers. Yeah, no, the two of you are very good. So, yeah, I just, I don't have answers to any of this, right? I know that 
taking a negative real return with lots of duration seems like a really, really bad idea. I know that expecting the U.S. to continue dominating world capital markets and from a shareholder return perspective could happen, but I'd want to think long and hard about what those odds really were. Um, you, you know, I, I know that working age deflation, I mean, you, you already see, in my opinion, some of the impacts of that coming to bear in China. Uh, and, and we've certainly seen in other countries like Russia and Italy. And I, I think that's going to be a pretty important story over the next decade. So I don't have any other concrete answers, but I just wanted to share some of those data because I thought they were they were so astounding. Great. Well, this was a lot of fun. This was interesting. I like the interactivity of it all too. Yeah, um, you, you guys were pretty good. So thanks for playing along. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and 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 I think uh, we should point out that that uh, quarterly deck from JP Morgan is publicly available. I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it, it should be. Yeah. If you just Google it, you should be able to find it. If not, yeah. we, I'm sure we can put a link into the show notes. We'll do that. Terrific. Thanks so much, Phil. I'll, Elliot, over to you. Great. So I wanted to talk about something that I think about a lot for brainstorming generally interesting areas to research and investment ideas. And specifically, what I'm talking about uh, are companies whose products they sell are important, but a very small percentage of the total cost of something that their customers need. Um, So I think one example I could give of that a company that I've talked about on this podcast before that we do own shares in is Cognex. They sell machine vision cameras. And the cameras in aggregate, you can think of them when someone's outfitting a factory or a logistic facility. Um, you know, the cameras cost somewhere in the five figures. But typically, these are investments that companies are making in the seven to eight figures. And Cognex competition, uh, which are inferior product, generally cost half. But the fact that it's such a small portion of the overall cost makes uh, the product. uh, You know that old saying of you never get fired for buying IBM, which is clearly no longer true, but it's just a cliche that I think is worth riffing off of, um, makes it a lot easier choice in places that respect quality because you're talking about a very small fraction of your total spend in a given large product, large project. Um, So I find those kinds of things interesting. I've heard about this concept from Peter Kaufman of Glen Eyre, um, who talks about how mission critical their circuit assemblies are, how small a portion of the total cost they are in uh, the final products that their customers are buying them for. Um, And I found it to be really interesting. So I just wanted to share like a handful of examples um, some of which we own, some of which we don't own, but I just thought they're each interesting. And then I wanted to ask you guys if you uh, have similar kinds of mental models, maybe appreciation for this one and some examples or whatever uh, else comes to mind. Um, one that I had been involved in is this company, Infi, which was purchased by Marvell. I'm no longer involved, but they sell this small piece that's like uh, a key uh, bottleneck in the speed with which information moves through data centers. Um, it's like the interconnect piece. And through this one piece is one of the most critical ways that uh, those who operate data centers could get faster uh, movement. And um, you know they're very inexpensive compared to the co- total cost of a data center and they have competition. But at the end of the day, um, when it's you know less than 1% of the total cost of what you're dealing with, um, there's only one easy choice. 
Um, another I think about is uh, this company Fever Tree, uh, who sells, and, and this is a slightly different angle to it, right? Um, they sell premium mixers uh, that are designed to be paired with, obviously, premium alcohols. And there's been this big wave. I think we talked about it three podcasts ago of premiumization in spirits. So as spirits, you're buying, you know, uh, basically think about the cost of a bottle of spirit versus the cost of a bottle of Coca-Cola, right? The spirit is a much bigger portion of that. And I think their slogan aptly taps into this phenomenon that I'm talking about here. If three fourths of your drink is the mixer, mix with the best. Um, and they're telling you, right? The one fourth is something that you spent way more than the three fourths on. Um, so I think it's an interesting value proposition. Um, another direction would be on the software side, a company like Olo, who I'm fascinated by, though don't own shares in. And what Olo does is they offer um, critical uh, backend systems to restaurants, especially for the facilitation of delivery through the various delivery services. And they help kind of integrate all the various platforms into one neat place. Uh, and they also are able to offer white-labeled uh, services when there's an outsourced delivery provider. So you pull that all together, the cost to a restaurant is going to be a very small percentage, uh, sub 1.5% of the total uh, revenue base of a restaurant, much less cost than the actual delivery service providers, but make all their systems work better, much easier, and help optimize which a uh, way to route certain orders and give capabilities to ignore the uh, DSPs altogether. Um, so I try to hunt the world and make a list of these kinds of companies and just have myself prepared for any of them when they become interesting or cheap. Um, another that comes to mind is this company Zebra that makes uh, barcode scanners and the barcodes themselves. And you print out these barcodes that go on just about everything. And obviously the cost of a barcode is next to nothing. Um, so, you know, while there's IP protecting it, you're obviously just going to, it doesn't really matter. You're talking about pennies, um, on products and all kinds of pieces of products. Um, so, you know, think trillions of barcodes printed all the time. Uh, so these kinds of things, um, you know, they're, they're worth looking for. Curious if you guys have any infatuations with these, with companies that come to mind that fit this bill or any other mental models that come to mind that might be similar in spirit in some way. Yeah, I would say this probably ranks definitely in my top five, maybe in my top three, kind of, if you had to pick one description or definition of a business and, and what they're up to, right? I mean, scaled economies, share, um, like Amazon or Costco would probably be at the top of the list just because I think the reinvestment opportunity there is so powerful and so fantastic. I think that would probably be the winner for me or maybe tied with just a low cost operator, uh, which again, the beauty of that is that Costco comes to mind there, but you know, some of the historical winners like Southwest and others that where it just really, it does something good for the consumer, right? By saving them money, right? I think if, if you're going to own something for more than a couple of quarters or even a couple of years, the, the business has to do something positive for its customers or you're going to be in trouble. So this would be right up there though. And it's definitely at the heart of my single biggest uh, investment, which again, I'll revert back to my grumpy old ways and go back to not making investment recommendations after I said, don't own any high-yield US credit ever. So, <laughs> but it's it very much fits this mold, Elliot, where it's a uh, 
it's a building products company where it's a very small percentage, you know, generally 1%, 2% of the total project cost, but you literally couldn't finish the project without it. And uh, because it's a very consolidated industry as well, there's a lot of rational competition and there's real pricing power so you can keep up and stay ahead of inflation. Um, the problem with this business model that I've run into is that it's almost tempting to abuse it. So you've just seen a handful of companies, uh, and I'll praise by category and and criticize or praise by name and criticize by category. I, there's just been a handful of companies. It's not in not endemic to the whole world or anything, but there there are companies where they have you know this they they know they've got you and they can just continue to turn the screws to you on price. And I think that does two things. It it, it kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth for the consumer, which is never a great idea. And two, it kind of encourages you to look for alternatives. It probably encourages um, competition more than it otherwise would. So there's a, I can, I'm sure we're all familiar with a significant company, a provider of financial data that's famous for hiking its prices every year. And uh, I just think that that's been a potentially suboptimal decision. I think they would have been better off for the next 10 and 20 years by growing the user base and keeping a lid on prices rather than just continually jacking up prices and juicing earnings and free cash flow. Um, there's no arguing with the long-term track record of the company, but I think it can be really tough because yes, even though this financial data is a, a tiny sliver of the expenses of any sort of organization that would be using it, the absolute dollars just become so painful, right? That it can be tough. And you, you've actually seen, I think, Transdime come into criticism for some of this as well. I'm not sure whether it's justified. I truly have no opinion on that. But you, you mentioned Peter Kaufman's company, which made me think of the same thing, where you have these little tiny components that are absolutely mission critical. And I, I think it's probably better for those CEOs to look at that as protection rather than a chance to just be greedy bastards and jump all over their customers. And I think that's what companies like Glenair get right. And and continue to you know be prudent over the long haul and not take advantage of their customers. I guess other examples. I mean, there's certainly tons and tons of software companies that would fall into this category. And I think that's one of the handful of things that makes that such an attractive business model. Uh, there's even some financial institutions where you know what they do is definitely a tiny percentage of you know, the overall cost of the project, so to speak. But it's irreplaceable. You can't get away without it. So. Um, I love it. I think it's a great it's a great way to think about things, and uh, certainly a powerful one. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan as well. Um, you know, it just makes a ton of sense, right? That if something's important but a small piece of the cost, you're not going to care about it as much, and uh, you're not going to be as sensitive to uh, to price increases. Uh, you know, it's funny, but the first kind of example that came to mind when you mentioned this, Elliot, was sausage casings. I guess that's a really good business. I forget what companies are in that space. Phil? I have a friend who's fascinated by the uh, a Spanish-listed company that does that, right? Okay. A Spain I, I didn't know. If, I didn't think of that. I was thinking more of like the cork company in Portugal that, uh, you know, you, if you want to have a wine bottle with oh, cork right. in it. But yeah, sausage that's... casings, sausage casings is a good one, I guess. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Um, I guess other examples that, that that came to mind on the payment processing side, you know, a company like Stripe that takes a small percentage of the revenue that comes in the door. And of course, you're happy to pay Stripe because you're getting like 97% as revenue coming in. Um, so actually 
you know, we use Stripe at MOI, and I don't even know exactly what the percentage is that they take. I just know it's low enough that I don't really have to care about it too much. Um, same goes for uh, freelance labor sites like Upwork that take a small fee of, um, you know, of whatever you pay a freelancer. Um, I w- I'd even put something like, you know, Google Mail and Google Drive and their suite of products for small businesses into this category because ultimately um, it's really important that all of that stuff is very safe, secure, um, that it's fast, that it that it just works and you have to have a provider that you trust, but ultimately it's a small part of the cost of running a, a, a business. Um, an interesting kind of twist on this that I also uh, thought about, um, Elliot, so I guess this is in the category of something similar, and credit here goes to Adam Crocker of Logbook Investments. Uh, he likes companies that are important to a consumer, but where um, the product is a low cost or a small percentage of the budget of a consumer. So examples would be sports clubs. You know, people who are loyal to a sports club, it's really important to them. Um, They're fans, they're loyal. But a ticket of, you know, ticket price for going to a game is generally a small piece of a budget. Similar goes for coffee shops. You know, you may really love coffee, you have your favorite coffee shop, but again, the cost is a small percentage of your budget. Um, and back to back to this uh, idea in general, I think the only pushback I would have on uh, on this kind of mental model, and I get it, but I always ask why why haven't they maximized the pricing already? If they can just, if it's a small percentage, and they can just get the price up why hasn't that happened already like how is that um something that's going to keep paying dividends in the future and and I, I guess that a little bit echoes what phil said where you can overdo it as well the sports thing is really fascinating john because i hadn't thought of that it's a good example i mean it's certainly not gonna break the bank if you go to one game or something for most people but then you start looking at the rise, you know, the, the price increases ahead of inflation and what used to be possible to take a family to one game or something versus what it costs today. And I just wonder if it hasn't almost worked against some of these sports franchises. Now, look, I mean, you could argue you've pushed people out of stadiums and in front of TVs, and that's actually been a net positive for the, the sports franchises. And that's that's probably true. And so many sports franchises are now global in in reach at least at the top levels that that's that's probably the most the more important thing but i also just wonder similar to my financial data company uh example a minute ago if there isn't a a middle path that would be better here right where it didn't cost you know five hundred dollars to take four people to one game or something right and i get it like the scarcity rules the day um and you know i'm thinking back to what the dallas cowboys did however many years ago it was when they built that stadium and they charged really high uh private seat licenses where you, whereby you had to actually pay upfront for the privilege of being a season ticket holder, right? It's like a pre-subscription subscription. And that's back in the news now because the Chicago bears here are, are potentially going to be leaving their longtime home along the lake and moving to the suburbs into this big new stadium. They're going to build where the rumor is they're going to potentially charge up to a hundred thousand dollars for one seat license. So I, I'm like, I don't have a 
interest in this personally. I'm not, I, I like the Bears. I'm not a Bears. I'm certainly not a season ticket holder that cares about this, but $100,000 for the right to own one seat just sort of takes the, the, this team out of the hands of most fans, right? And I, to me, I mean, it's better than taxpayer financing for the stadium. So I guess in that sense, I'm a big fan of it. But like, how far can you push that, right? Well, I'll tell you how far you could push that. The Jets did that in a taxpayer financed stadium that they shared with another team. And it gave them the right to change the terms of it after five years. <laughs> what did they charge, so they, you know? Uh it depended on where in the stadium you were, but it was definitely in the fi- in the mid in the five figure ranges. Wow! Mm. And obviously, they weren't able to sell them all because they are the Jets. Their fan base is in Long Island. They made Jersey their permanent home. I could rant about the Jets all day, and Dad, I can't believe you made me a Jets fan. But uh, you know, I, I I could say more on that. Um, I think you guys both gave some awesome examples and I think it's really interesting. Um, and, and some that make me think of other areas and John, I can't believe you said Stripe because like uh, payments in general, such an, such an area that's so important to me that I've thought about so much. And I didn't even like think of them in this paradigm and it makes so much sense. They actually are. (laughs) And it's totally mission critical. Like you literally can't do what you do without, uh, a, a piece that took care of the payments for you though. Maybe Bitcoin solves that, as they say on Twitter. Um, but that's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. I think what we need is like, you know, a, a catchy name for this concept. I don't know if you've ever heard of one, but um, what, what, what's a catchy name for something that's mission critical, but very low in price? Hey, you're right. <laughs> we may have to think about that for a week. I don't know. Right. If you're going to launch an ETF on that, you're definitely going to need something. Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking. You know, I uh, feel as you talked about sports uh, franchises kind of hiking their pricing, I was thinking of how uh, Disney has done that, that with Disney World. I mean, that's crazy. They have, but I think I saw numbers on this where the price of a ticket, a one-day admission to one of the parks, I don't remember if it's Disney World, Disneyland, or whatever, has gone up a lot. But in terms of the capital investment in the park and the, you know, inflation adjusted purchasing power of that dollar over time it wasn't nearly as bad as i would have thought and i have to imagine that the price of going to at least in the us a major league baseball game an nba game an nfl game has gone up way more than the price of a ticket to disney would be my guess but i don't have that data in front of me so i don't know that i mean it's a good example though right i think disney's probably way more thoughtful about you know all right how do we still make this attainable for the most number of people to come enjoy our products and services, right? How do we, how do we make this the best decision for our, for our overall company? And uh, I just wonder if some of these businesses and some of these sports teams in particular aren't, it's almost like with what they've done in cable, right? I mean, ESPN has become such a juggernaut that it almost worked against them. And in my opinion, kind of accelerated the fragmentation, the refragmentation into these you know, streaming bundles, right? Where everybody just cuts the cord because they're so sick of their cable bill being so egregiously high, right? I mean, it's sort of that, that that's probably a good example, counterexample of, of where this can go wrong. Yeah, the cable example is a really interesting one. Um, and it's absolutely gone wrong. And I think the cable companies all realize that's not what they're selling anyway. So let's focus on jacking up the price of internet and letting everyone find where they want to go for the channels. That's pretty interesting. I had a couple other companies, uh, or actually one in particular that came to mind when he said uh, Cork way back when, the, the, this company that sells uh, the barrels that uh, whiskeys and wines are aged in, uh, TFF in Paris. 
um, like one of those hundred year old companies that's just been doing the same thing for a long time, although kind of expanding a little bit. Uh, find all these kinds of things interesting. Should uh, uh, hopefully solicit some listener feedback for any other companies that you find and know of that fit the bill and would love to hear some inbound uh, here or you know hit us up on Twitter with some inbound um, thoughts over there. That would be great. Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing I wonder about, and, and I'm curious if you guys have a take on this, is just um, are most of these companies small caps just because you're kind of a small slice of some t- other TAM and it, it just would seem like you know you'd, you'd kind of ultimately have a limited market I mean take cork take sausage casings you know take those kinds of examples how do you remain a growth business or I guess you don't maybe the, the whole game is at some point you just uh, do the the capital allocation game and 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 you know, cannibalize your own share count. I can tell you for sure that with the building products company that I mentioned, that is absolutely the problem because they're absolutely capped and limited by what they can reinvest in because they just, they've tried to diversify. It's failed horribly over the years. And I mean, years of decades and it's a real limit. And yeah, they're, they're perpetually stuck in small cap land. And yeah, I think that's a great point. I don't, the only potential solutions are to become adapted capital allocation or sell and become part of a bigger enterprise, right? I don't see what else you can do. Well, I'll give you some counterpoints. I mean, Cognex is a $15 billion market cap. Zebra is a $30 billion market cap. Infi sold to Marvell for $10 billion. Although at least for a day in this market, at nosebleed valuations, it's traded as a uh, outside the small and mid cap range. Um, but, you know, I think what all those have in common compared to some of the others is they're uh, rather than being purely physical, they are definitely uh, digital and that just gives a whole lot more scale to the business inherently. Um, but I mean, Cognex so, is a good example. I mean, they're at a billion dollars of revenue. Like they're not going to be, I mean, I don't know the company, so you tell me, but like, it's going to be hard for them to be ever as big as like the big cap tech guys, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of stuck. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I'd say like 99% of companies can't be that big, though. No, I, no, right, know, but they're still growing pretty swiftly for a billion dollar company. I think their problem is more about like the consistency with which they grow. It's kind of like they walk up a bunch of stairs down one stair, walk back up a bunch of stairs, you know, right. um, it's a weird setup. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree, Elliot, with you that for for these more digital kinds of businesses um the tams can be you know still pretty pretty darn large um and then if you take a business like money where you're a payment processor and basically money can get recycled many many times uh so that that tam can be ultimately unlimited and uh so even a small piece of that is still huge um so yeah i guess it 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 really boils down to whether uh, you're one of the more um, kind of real world, um, you know, Adams kinds of uh, businesses. And then I guess the the question is, does the management really understand and embrace that limit uh, if it exists um, and kind of act accordingly? Or as Phil said, uh, are they going to try to do various acquisitions to kind of uh, break free of that and and try to grow? And I guess that that could be a risk to, you know, this kind of approach is just make sure 
understand where in that you know growth uh, curve they're at and if they're nearing the end of that what's management like and do they understand uh capital allocation yeah i think i think that's just it i think it's the temptation right because capital allocation isn't what got them there and they hit the end of that reinvestment runway and they have had a good thing going and they've been raising price and it's worked really well and it's just it's just like a, a roll-up in one sense, right? They can work really well, but the last one sometimes kills you. Yep. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, guys, Phil, Elliot, and thanks everyone for listening. Another great discussion. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.